Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Liz Nielsen is an artist who works in photography. She has an MFA from the University of Illinois, Chicago, a BFA from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and she currently lives and works in New York. Her works have been reviewed in The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal, and her solo exhibition at Danziger Gallery, The Medium, opened April 8th. She'll have a two-person exhibition with Max Warsh at Sirius Art Center in Cobb, Ireland, opening June 22nd. And she has an upcoming artist residency at the Budapest Art Factory in Hungary. I also wanted to thank Michael Lovett of Niska Lines for the intro music and the introduction, and Sean James Seymour for the music you hear during my introductions. You can find more on them on our website, soundandvisionpodcast.com. So let's get to it. Here's Liz and I in her studio in Brooklyn. So, um, yeah, let's, what, if you don't mind, let's start off by talking about you and okay. where you came from. Okay. Which is Detroit? Which is Seattle. Seattle. Actually born in Wisconsin. Wisconsin. But I only lived there till I was one, so I can't remember it. And I haven't been back to where I was born. Never? No, Ashland. It's way up north. It's remote. I would really like to go. I mean, I went on the Google map where mm-hmm. I dropped the little yellow guy in. Yeah. And visited my the whole... street view? Yeah. <laughs> I used to live at 1100 Ellis Avenue uh-huh. in Ashland, Wisconsin. My house was pretty nice. Well, how did you end up there? My parents lived there and then... But, I mean, what brought them to Ashland? Oh, um, Northern College, I think, or Northland College. Okay. I think it's a hippie school. I'm really They not, both taught there, I think. I'm not terribly familiar with the Midwest in uh, in general. So I don't know that much about that school. I just remembered hearing it was a hippie school. Yeah. But anyway, so I moved to Seattle after that, and so I consider myself from Seattle. That's why today I, I said, it's nice out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's all this gray is, outside. This is your weather. Is it a Seattleite? Would you call a Seattleite, it? yeah. Seattleite? And I don't own an umbrella. Why bother? I know, right? <laughs> if it's raining, it just hits you. So wh- what age did you move there? I moved there at uh, one and a half. One and a half? Yeah. Oh, so you have so no I don't memory. remember. Yeah, yeah. That's why I don't remember Ashland. So you relate to Seattle? I relate to Seattle, but I spent some formative years in Omaha, Nebraska, too. Whoa. How did I know. How did that happen? My father's in education, so... We moved. Educators move around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Did you I went to high school. Back? Did you go back to Seattle? I went back to Seattle after Omaha for college. And I went to Seattle U. I've been to Omaha. Omaha's a nice yeah. place to be. It's a cool... It's got a good music s- scene. It does. We played... My my band I was in played a show there. What and if band? I, oh, 33.3. Just curious. Yeah, it was a band back when I was in school, in grad school. We met, and then we... Uh, we played, we recorded a couple records and toured a few times, but yeah, Omaha, I find, if I'm not mistaken, there's like a little strip, maybe, like this one long road, if I, I remember correctly, and there was like a little record shop, I think, that we stopped. There's in. the downtown area, which is the old market, which mm-hmm. kind of has what you're describing. It's near Bemis as well. Oh, yeah. Which, which I had, I've never been there. Bemis it- is amazing. I've never done a residency there, but I've visited residents 
that were staying there, yeah. and they have gorgeous studios, uh, big bedrooms. It's really nice. When did they start? When did that start up? I don't know when it started. It's, it wasn't there back then, right? It's relatively new. It's kind of new. I think there was a there was a ceramicist there or a sculptor named June. Uh-huh. I don't know his last name, and he's he was there all along. And then I think the residency program started after that. Yeah, I had a, I beautiful. was in a show there, but I've never been. Oh, it sounds like a cool place. Yeah, and plus they have three to six month residencies, so it's yeah. kind of nice to get somewhere like Omaha where you probably don't know anybody and make your work. You'll probably have some good time to make work. I would know people there. I would. I would have some older friends. I'd run into people probably. That's pretty cool. That I went to high school with. And they would be like, Liz? Liz Nielsen? Is that you? (laughs) (laughs) You haven't changed today. (laughs) (laughs) From your days back in Omaha. Yeah. So you went to Seattle. Back to Seattle. Back to Seattle. And then I went to Chicago where I lived for 11 years. The Art Institute of Chicago? The Art Institute and then University of Illinois, Chicago. And then I also taught at both University of Illinois Chicago and the Art Institute. What's the, I visited um, the Art Institute when I was, you know, applying for grad schools. So I got a little bit of a feel. And I had a lot of friends who went to Chicago Mm -hmm. from Pittsburgh. When Mm -hmm. I went to, you know, Penn State, a lot of people went to uh, Chicago. And um, I've never been to UIC. What's the difference between the two? Like, um, is UIC a little more, UIC is it smaller? Is, it's smaller, and my class was probably 20, or maybe 20 people within both of the years, so first yeah. and second year, maybe 25, and I'm still quite close with that group, mm-hmm. and most of them live in New York, but UIC is more, I mean, the way it's known is it's more conceptual, mm-hmm. and they don't have as many facilities, in a, and some people might have thought it was more of like the school of the hard knocks that you can usually get um, good scholarships and money to go there yeah and then if i hadn't gone to the art institute and already experienced the art institute i might have really wanted to go there for grad school but everything kind of is there's a strong community around the art institute anyway and that goes out into all the other schools so that affects uic yeah um, but UIC is very critical in, in its discussion in the fact that it's not medium-centric at all. Mm-hmm. Not that the Art Institute is, but there's departments there. Like you enter in to get your MFA in photo, whereas at UIC you're getting your MFA in photo, but you all of your critiques are not necessarily with anybody related to photo at all. It's just art. It's just art. Yeah. So everybody's at every critique, all the faculties at every critique, discussing the work not based on the medium. Yeah. One of my friends from high school, his name's Jeremy Boyle. He's a sound artist. Oh, yeah. He went to UIC. Yeah, I know who he is and really enjoy his work. Yeah, it's very... It's interesting because it fits that mold. It doesn't... His work really doesn't... It's kind of its own thing. He incorporates sculpture, sound, installation, but engineering and, you know, it's really interesting too because growing up, we used to skateboard together all the time. And he would take apart things in his room, just like a like a little radio. Mm-hmm. And he would just take the whole thing apart and then build it back together. Again. You know, like his room is just filled with all these parts. He had and that engineering brain. Yeah, it's just it's kept with him. And it's I love when you, you know, you see someone early on who's doing something, and they just, as they get older, they keep that core of interest, and it just mutates into like different avenues of expression. You know, he yeah. definitely had that sensibility the whole way through. And he was also in a band in Chicago called Joan of Arc. And he oh, made, I know that band. yeah, he made the little instruments that he played live that were like integrated circuits and stuff. And 
Yeah, I kind of recall them, that. I actually think I'd seen them play. I had another friend that was in grad school with me mm-hmm. that went was in that band, too. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Who was that? Todd Matai. Todd Matai. I yeah. went to high school with Todd. Oh, yeah. He's a cool guy. Yeah. He was in. He was a, the year below me in grad school and did video art. But I'm still in yeah. contact with him. He And he teaches at UIC still, I think. Yeah. And he, we were in a high school band together. That's great. With... Um, yeah, with a bunch of other people who went on to Chicago bands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a small, small world. world. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so Jeremy fits into that really well. He's an amazing artist. And I haven't even, I haven't seen what he's been up to lately, but he's, he's really interesting. And yeah, I, the, I that kind of either. sound art, you know, when I was uh, in Pittsburgh at the Mattress Factory, there was an artist, Rolf Julius, who did like these sound installations. And I think, I know Jeremy did a, a residency there at the Mattress Factory too. And I'm always really intrigued by where sound art, like mm-hmm. you know, making music and and sculpture and and sound art kind and of, installations. Yeah, it all converges in a really interesting way. I don't think it's easy to do that kind of work. You know, Mm-mm. it's it it operates so differently in that gallery context, and that's why the Mattress Factory is a really cool place because you can go do these really interesting installations, like take up part of the sidewalk and embed like you know, trigger systems for sounds to go off and stuff like that. Yeah. I've been to the mattress, mattress factory before once. Yeah. It's Pittsburgh has, it's, it's a, interesting. It, cool. yeah. Like growing up there, you just want to get out, mm-hmm. but because you feel like it's provincial and it's closed off. I don't know. You just want to go on to something bigger. But, um, uh, in retrospect, you realize the Carnegie museum and the Warhol museum and the mattress factory just for a, you yeah. know, a provincial it's town. It's culturally got a good, rich. Yeah. It's yes. got, a, it's got a good art art backbone i guess mm-hmm. so seattle were you is that where you started to get into art is it something mm. you started when you were a kid or like how did it yeah i mean of course we all say well when i was a kid i did this and that um i did have a strong sense of interest in color when i was a kid in mm-hmm. the sense that i would go and spend all my allowance on food coloring <laughs> and then put it mix it into different um, amounts of water yeah and then I got into putting it into bags, which this was before Ziploc, actually, I think. Uh-huh. Or at least I didn't have Ziploc bags, but they're like the little sandwich bags. I would mix colors into them and then hold them over my eyes so I could see the world through one shade of like kind that's, of... That's what you're doing now. <laughs> I know. So, yeah. So you can see like the interest still. But I guess probably near the end of the time that I was in school I started taking photography but I did a little bit of drawing and painting which actually was really hard mm-hmm. um, for me and uh, and I think that that really grabbed me and then I got into mono printing um, or printmaking but mono printing was something that I was really drawn to which I think I'll still return to I'm hoping to do some more printmaking yeah. in my future um, but I did photography, and then I worked for a magazine, like an advertising magazine. Mm-hmm. But I didn't get to do the design. I was doing the sales. <laughs> and that's kind of what drove me to art school. Yeah. Because I remember looking and thinking, why am I on this side of it? You wanted to be on I the creative do, side. Yeah. Yeah. And so I did a um, – no, actually, first, then I assisted in mm-hmm. Seattle. I assisted a photo studio that used to shoot the Eddie Bauer and the Nordstrom magazine. I just went in and got this assistant ship job where I basically like set up lights and loaded film and things like that and did all the grunt work. But you're learning the but material was, side of it. Yeah, I went to go do that just to kind of be sure that I wanted to go back to school. Yeah. So you were sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I made sure. That job was 
it really interesting. I mean, it was it was commercial photography. It wasn't actually where I wanted to go, but it was. I had my hands on new cameras. I had my hands on four by fives. I learned how to load sheet film and work with Hasselblad and things like that. Yeah, I love that. That's kind of you know because not every photographer has that experience in the commercial world, you know, mm-hmm. but you've had direct experience in that. And I think of your photographs as being almost like the, the exact opposite of that kind of photography. Yeah, it definitely. I mean, I have done a little dabbling here and there, mostly for money. Mm-hmm. Like I'll do a day long yeah. photo shoot or something. I haven't really done that lately, but, um, for a while I was doing a lot of yoga photography. Nice. So I would <laughs> set up these like really nice, like white seamless, backdrops and all the strobes and everything and then shoot people doing all their poses for their websites wow that were yoga you know young aspiring yoga teachers yeah Mm -hmm. so yeah opposite did the the technical um experience with all the materials that you learned on those gigs do you find that that's incorporated into what you're doing now or is it something that you kind of purposefully go against in a way or i mean i'm probably one of the most technical photographers mm-hmm. that I know. Um, and that means inside the camera and outside the camera. Um, just I'm very focused on the math yeah. within the work, even though it has a really intuitive quality. Like every color requires uh, light wavelengths to hit the paper in certain ways. So if you even look at the photographs and you can tell that there's a sense of control mm-hmm. of the colors that I'm getting, that's that's technical. Yeah. Um, but inside of a camera, I'm like that too. I'm always thinking this is what the camera's thinking and this is what I want to do. And those two things rarely meet together. Yeah. Like you have to know, you have to know what, how to move the camera outside of what it thinks. Right. Well, how much of the process is improvisational? Is any of, I mean, cause I know you're controlling certain aspects of it, right? But is there some of it that you don't know exactly how it's going to Within the body of work that I'm working with now, yes, there's definitely elements of chance. I'm not using the camera at all. Mm-hmm. Some of it is made out of stencils completely. Um, oh, I'm calling them stencils, but it's like cardboard um, ways of blocking out light or objects that block out light. Um, and some of it is made a lot more planned where I'm mixing colors very specifically through transparency, like different transparencies or transparent objects or things or gels. Um, so sometimes like when I'm using the cardboard elements, when I'm just literally throwing different flashlights of, um, different types of handheld lights, toy lights, all that stuff, that's, that's when I get a lot of surprises, Mm -hmm. but I'm like really learning how to tame it. Sometimes I not only directly light a subject, light my paper, but I sometimes bounce the light off of walls Mm -hmm. or, um, even like mix lights with my cell phone light or mix a lot of lights together because that's how I get the path. That's how I get different colors and those I can really tell what I'm going to get. But sometimes I, I see surprises all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Have you become, um, I don't want to like kind of like an expert in color and just dealing with, I feel like you're in the process end of it, you know, whereas maybe if you're making a painting, you're, you're really knowledgeable how to mix colors in the flesh, like those pigments. Mm-hmm. But I feel like you're dealing with color within this spectrum, within this, yeah. you know, the light spectrum. And it's a total different scientific process. It's totally different. I mean, um, to call myself an expert, there's like no way I would ever do that. <laughs> but um, just More knowledgeable than me? I have so <laughs> much to learn still, even myself. 
definitely more knowledgeable than, than you. I mean, I can give like an easy example, which is just mixing two colors, which um, is where I was a few years ago, mm -hmm. just mixing two colors at once. Um, like mixing red and green, for instance, gives you yellow light. Mm -hmm. And that's like counterintuitive to right. a painter. Yeah. Um, and But yellow light actually gives you blue on the paper because yellow is opposite of blue. Yeah. And in paint, orange is opposite of blue. So there's just like a constant thinking of two colors making one color. But then when you're mixing more colors, it becomes almost like these harmonies or these four-fingered barcodes, mm -hmm. chords that you're playing um, with an instrument um, in the dark. And I definitely have a strong grasp of it. And I did get that starting through the camera. I used to just wave lights in front of my lens with while exposing in mm -hmm. bulb and then count like an like red light took eight seconds longer to like make the imprint yeah. than like a blue light or something because you can count through the wavelengths in terms of like the frequencies so i have a lot of knowledge yeah based on my own scientific experiments or pseudoscientific experiments mm -hmm. with light um but i don't i mean i could definitely write it all down because i do write it down a lot of times like i'll I do a, I have a sketchbook and I'll mark what color everything is going to be and I know how to make that. Yeah. But it's really fast. Like lighting with light in the dark room is it's all like a second at a time. It Which is, is exhilarating, not right? Like that. Slow, yeah. It's almost performative, right? It's super performative. I actually practice my movements and yeah. and also tape off different spots on the ground and different areas in the dark room before I turn off the lights because in color, you don't have a red light at all. Yeah. It's just pitch black. So um, when you move one part, a lot of the photographs have maybe between, you know, one to almost 45 exposures within mm -hmm. one image. So there's a lot of performance, a lot of moving elements, a lot of if I move one thing, I need to grab which light and where is that light and how far do I need to stand back to make the color I want. Or how close do I need to get? Or am I grabbing two lights? Or am I grabbing three lights? Or in what order am I doing things? Yeah. Um, the one thing is that it doesn't matter in some senses, like if you were to lay like, it just doesn't matter if you laid like a red light on top of a blue light because they'll always mix. Like it wouldn't matter if you did blue first and then red or you did red first and then blue. Yeah. They'll still just go together since that's the quality of light. So there's some elements that it doesn't matter the order that I'm doing things, but... Well, I love the relationship to you. Like earlier, you were talking about monoprints. They're like they're prints in a way, and it's, there's, there's like a collage aspect to it mm -hmm. where it's a collage of movements that are creating the opportunity for these... the colors to happen, right? Yeah. And the exposure of things. Isn't it kind of like a layered... Like the performance of making it. How long does it take to make... I mean, I know it's not a fixed amount of time, but like on one of these sort of rainbow images, how long, how many exposure, how many, what is the process of something like that? Um, usually I'll start in my studio building the negative um, or building like what I'm going to start with as the negative. Um, and that would be like where it's white and then where each of the rainbow uh, arcs are. I build all that in my studio and I tape it all together. So I cut it all apart and I take it all, tape it all together and it's kind of like a puzzle. Mm -hmm. And then I take that to the dark room with the lights that I'm going to use. But, um, and then when I get in the dark, 
I set, I have to set it up on top of the paper, cut the paper and set it up on top of the paper. And then I move one arc at a time Mm -hmm. and expose that. So I would say that that photograph took me about 30 minutes to expose, but actually that's just a lot of the, um, preparation before and after each exposure, like actually each bit of arc only took one second mm-hmm. to expose. So yeah. if you were to break it down, it would be like eight seconds, I guess, to make it. But right. there's 30 minutes in the dark and then 20 minutes in the studio or 30 minutes making the making the cuts. And then there's the, you know, then there's the sketching in the notebook. There's a lot of things that kind of are in it, but it's not that long. I mean, it's a photograph. It, you know? Yeah. I love the little layers, kind of like the edges that layer and create these reverberations to the image. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you're really... I'm super... I'm really focused on the edges yeah. in general and all around. In fact, I do a lot of burning in of the edges. Mm-hmm. The edges I light even differently than the regular. So I'm focused on the edges as much as the subject. Yeah. And you can tell that because there's a variation of edges throughout a lot of the work. And so you will you can see that it's lit. Some of them have more echoes than others, and that has to do with angles in which I light. Because mm-hmm. I not only light from the top or evenly, I light unevenly and I light from the sides. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To me, it's that becomes almost a surface. Mm-hmm. Because it is an even surface, but those little birds, like those little ripples on the edges where the light changes and the color changes become like texture Mm -hmm. in a way. It does make it feel like, yeah, the collage element that you're saying. But for me, I'm just thinking so much about like light light painting um, and light bleeding Mm -hmm. and just trying to control light, contain it and let it, let it loose. Yeah. Like even the one next to it is a freehanded rainbow. So the top part is never, has never been blocked out. It's only been blocked out by the way I cup the lights inside of my hands. Mm-hmm. So that gives it a much it. more... Or- well, yeah, because if like- I like let it go, it would be all orange and yellow up at the top because the light would spray. Yeah. But um, but you can kind of contain it just the way you would with directing like a hose or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, um, are you... I mean, obviously you must, but do you like the surface, the consistent surface of all these? Mm-hmm. Because it's so different than like, you know, you, the the tools that you're making, like whether it's cardboard or like there's there's things that you're using in the process of the photograph that are really physical mm-hmm. and the process is physical. Mm-hmm. But the surface of the final photograph is so uniformly slick every time. Like it's that same surface. Yeah. I have two papers I work on. One is this Fuji Flex, which is super shiny, almost mm-hmm. looks like liquid. It actually is more it's easy to scratch but it's less easy to dent Uh and um the other paper that i like a lot is called is luster and it has more of a tooth and it's also kind of shiny and slick but it it's that one's easier to dent but like harder to scratch Mm -hmm. um they're just kind of two different qualities but yeah you i have the feeling of whatever i'm working with in terms of the negative it could be so rough like I can find anything I make negatives out of anything and they're not slick like the cardboard I I mean I'll just dig through the garbage at you know and be like okay I'm gonna use this random piece of paper this has like I'm holding things up to the light all the time because they have these different pulps and different textures and Mm -hmm. 
um, ways of letting light a little bit through or edges that will also be effective. Sometimes if you print like a cardboard in the negative carrier, that corrugation shows up. Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. You get that on yeah. the final piece. Yeah. What about the, um, the sculptural photographs that you're doing, the cutouts? How oh, are you approaching those? Yeah, those are some something I've been working with for quite some time, but I haven't ever shown those yet, uh, except for maybe in Austin Eddie's closet. Mm-hmm. And the reason is I don't know how to mount them. I just have not figured out how to deal with them yet. I have a show up in Ireland, coming up in Ireland this summer, and I'm planning on bringing a few of those. I like the idea of them being free floating. Mm-hmm. I like it a lot. Like I like the non-square, non-rectangle edge, and I like the idea of working with collage. And I guess they become more sculptural in that, right? Yeah. But I, I right now it's literally a technical situation of how am I going to mount them? I'd want to die cut them, but. It's hard to use a CNC router after um, you have an image if it if it didn't have a file first. Yeah. So then I might do them on aluminum or something like a thin aluminum, but then I have to figure out about how to do the adhesive correctly so they're they never bubble. Yeah. It's tricky. It is tricky, but I love the the shape, like the playfulness of them, and that they have such a objectness to them because of that shape you know it's the same paper really right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but they have a total different feel it's almost like you're pulling out these characters from the photographs and giving them like they're becoming oh yeah a real object or like yeah it's it's really interesting yeah i like that and i like that you even say the characters because a lot of the totem shapes i only have a few up right now because most of them are not in the studio currently but these shapes of the totem is something I've been working with a lot. And I've been thinking about it as not a traditional totem and not being fixed, but being something transient and mm-hmm. also being something that um, has an identity. I guess totems had an identity. I mean, they told stories and held history and warnings and, you know, of their exact community. But um, these, I think of like that too, like almost having hidden messages in them from the future. Yeah. Um, but also they're, they're like space beans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they operate they could be, and that's, what's really interesting. They could be, uh, totally different things in your mind. You know, they, they mm-hmm. have that composition and that structure to them, but then it's kind of free from there. Mm-hmm. And I, I, honestly, I kind of like to, that just that paper on the wall, especially next to the other prints, because it's the same sort of process to it, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? But they're just pinned up and mm-hmm. they look really interesting. Um, one thing in your work that I'm always, in my mind, relating, I'm thinking, this person must be really interested in, like, modern painting and modern design and, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of era of these shapes and playfulness. And I don't know, is that something that you think about a lot? In your yeah, work? painting is the medium I'm most drawn to, especially for research, but I mm-hmm. just love painting. Um, I'm always looking at painting. It's one, It's my favorite thing to look at. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the shapes that might be uh, presented in modernism, I mean, yes, I'm very interested in, I want to say classical beauty, but it has something to do with math for me. And I suppose that's also part of modernism. I'm interested in classic ancient shapes. So mm-hmm. circles, triangles, squares, <laughs> um, yeah. simple things like and those will be brought out within my work all the time, whether they uh, are in conversation with skateboard art or whether they're um, floating like mandalas, um, or I'm interested in looking at a lot of 
a lot of modernistic or modern like work, I guess. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how to really answer that, but I think about it a lot. Like I center, I have a lot of things floating in the dead center of the page. I'm that kind of thing is something I was always told not to do in photography. Right. Yeah. Don't there. Everybody said, Oh, rule of thirds and things like that. And I mean, I have taught photography and yeah. I'm, even when I'm doing that, I'll say, here's, here are the compositional rules. You don't have to use them if you don't want to. Right. Yeah. Like William Eggleston didn't. Um, a lot of photographers didn't use them, but I think it's easy. It's easy to just put something in the center of the page, but I think that, a subject deserves to be in the center of the page. Yeah. I mean, it, me. it serves a purpose. Yeah. Just like using black out of a tube. Yeah. Sometimes that serves a purpose in the paint. It depends what you're doing and what the image is and how you're creating that image. But, you know, there's always this adage, never use black out of a tube. Yeah. And I use black out of the tube all the time for specific things, you know. It, it, and it, there's certain people, I think that's all they do in their work. It's black and white and it makes total sense. But, yeah, yeah it's funny how those rules burn into you. When you yeah. hear them early and often, and then you kind of think, I can't do this. Can I? This is, I'm not supposed to be doing Or the this. edges of the photograph people said, don't do full full frame. It just it starts kind oh, of yeah. looking like, I don't know. But now, I mean, now I think it's really important, especially after digital happened, because then, then there was a period where you couldn't really tell if something was digital or analog. And yeah. I really like the analog quality of working in the way I work, but... I'm interested in classical um, structures, like yeah. equilateral compositions and um, center of the page, and then and then continuing to continuing to use these shapes, which I feel like are going to be in the future and have been in the past, and are really are really specific geometric, but with the hand included. Yeah. That's interesting. Have you ever thought about because just looking at the large scale images? Mm -hmm. It makes me think of projections, and anytime I think of light, you know, on a large scale, mm -hmm. I think of projection. Mm -hmm. And like, since I started doing animation and video stuff, I think before I did that, I, n I didn't really think about it that much. But now, I'm often like, if I see a large screen or if I see something projected, I'm instantly my mind starts, the wheels start turning in my mind about, you know, how things can be projected in large scale. Have you ever mm -hmm. thought about incorporating light outside of the photographs at all? Whether it's video or film mm. or... I mean, mm -hmm. I, I don't know if you're interested in... like I really like Hans Richter and Eggleston. Like all these old uh, avant-garde kind of uh, um, early animation. You know, yeah. Where they're using um, exposure in film or drawing like stop motion. And yeah, I haven't done too much projection outside of the photographs, but I find that really interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, especially if I could control it like in the sense of almost projecting an image like it would be projected onto paper onto a wall. Mm -hmm. I would be interested in that. I've done a couple little pieces. I was going to say one was near us. There's a piece I made called Diet Pizza. Uh -huh. And it's basically a projection of a photograph of a piece of pizza mm -hmm. projected onto a plate. So it <laughs> is kind of like that. Yeah. Um, and when I actually printed that negative, it was a blue and black piece of pizza. Mm -hmm. Because that would be the opposite of like the reds and oranges Red, and yellows. Yeah. But it's kind of nice to look at a negative like that because I made it so cheesy. I had so many layers on there, all these pepperonis, everything. There were probably 15 layers of um, like gel, transparent gel lightings on it. But mm -hmm. none of that comes through because when you actually print work, 
a lot of the a lot of wavelengths will merge with each other immediately. Yeah. Especially with light colors. Like if you're not mixing red, green, blue, which would give you white. Mm -hmm. If you're just mixing shades of pinks, reds, oranges, yellows, all that just goes to blue a lot. Yeah. Or blues. Very close cyan color. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I would be interested in doing some projection stuff. I have done a lot of photographs using a slide projector, projecting onto like metal and things like that, and then taking photographs of that yeah. in the past. Um, but I haven't been incorporating it into the future, into my current work, I guess. Yeah. It's interesting, too, thinking about when we were talking about paint before and then that kind of additive color and mm -hmm. then the opposite is how um, prevalent technology is in our lives and the way we're encountering so many images mm -hmm. that are made of a different kind of light than print. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. And how I, I think unconsciously you must be adjusting to that or you know i see a lot of young people who are painting and they're painting off their iphones or you know yeah. so much of the, of what people are looking at is made with a different kind of color it's like backlit color. yeah um is that something that you're interested in related to your work i am interested in it um it's the opposite of the modernists kind of you know that purity yeah. or you know i feel like it's i've a had totally a period of time where i was making digital work uh-huh um and that was also really interesting for me too. I just went through it and, uh, and I probably will return to it at some point, but a lot of work, a lot of ideas that I currently have came out of that period because you can do so much so fast digitally. Yeah. You can just look at one thing and then look at it 20 different ways all within five minutes yeah. or less. Um, and so I think that informed some ways of layering that I work with currently because especially using Photoshop or like Lightroom, you can layer on top and then like take layers away and decide how you want things to go. And I think my work became more layered after having done that. Yeah. But I'm not, I don't know. I am interested in stuff like that. I mean, just little moments. Like I like sneezed the other day and like a little particle of spit hit my phone and then I saw this little rainbow inside yeah, the spit makes... on my phone. And I was like, Oh, I love that. The red, green and blue popping up on yeah. my screen through that light. It's just like all there. I mean, I used to stare at the TV in the same way, like love it when it was in, not when it had all that static on it, mm -hmm. not the black and white, but the red, green, blue static. Yeah. Um, and even at the first photo studio I worked at, we had to stand still while a red pass went and then a blue pass went and then a green pass went because it was mm -hmm. one of the first big, really expensive digital cameras. So those things really, I think about them a lot. Um, and I do think about mixing light a lot. Um, especially pastel light is really exciting to get. Yeah. And I've just been getting more pastels lately because mm -hmm. pastel light is something you don't even you don't even think people don't even think about pastel light yeah. as making it. No, not a, I mean, pastel brings up certain things in your mind, but it's not like, you know, the construction of it. It's yeah. just like what you associate it with culturally, I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think looking at pastel light on a screen and then making it onto a painting, like that's not that hard. You just add some white in there. Yeah. Maybe. But like um, to make it in the dark, um, make it as light is really tricky. You really have to do a lot of diffusion and like mm -hmm. light bouncing and stuff to get that. It's you like... have to like starve the <laughs> starve the paper of the light that it wants. Yeah, is it so? It's really difficult to do to pull off. Um, 
it's, I mean, it's easy to make something that's like underexposed. Mm-hmm. So like, um, that would mean you don't give it that much light. Yeah. But to make certain pastels like purposefully, like a purple pastel or something like that, I couldn't have done that five years ago. Yeah. You know what's funny too? Like in looking at your work, I'm instantly thinking about um, the phenomenon of like how we understand color in our eyes. Like, you know, with the way we break down color and mm-hmm. the rods and cones. And I don't know if you've like read about that. Like I was reading something recently about how certain animals have like a way wider range. Like the mantis shrimp? The mantis shrimp. Yeah, exactly. Oh my God. I listened to an NPR or no, it was a radio lab. Mm-hmm. It's a, they see in like a range that we can't even understand. Yeah, right? that I love. And I do think about that a lot. One of my favorite things to think about is ancient light. Yeah. Um, and then also colors within colors within colors within colors, mm-hmm. which is, I'm sure, what the mantis shrimp sees. But I think that the mantis shrimp probably has the ability to, like, see a color, but then see all of the all of everything around that color in a way that we can't necessarily right. see. Because I think it's part of it was part of that, well, the radio lab that I heard, and I don't know if this differs from the article, but it talked about... Um, people that had four cones in their eyes instead of three because most humans have three. Yeah. But some women have four. And Super color. Yeah, yeah, they can see hyper color. And they can see, like, when they look at a sky, they can see sort of, like, echoes around. Like, they'll say, like, oh, it's a, this color sunset, but there are these other undertones. And I think it's just, um, I mean, it's really exciting, yeah. first of all, like, the thought of that. Um because I'm always thinking about the edges of the spectrum. That's mm-hmm. why a lot of the blacks are fall red right at the edge because yeah. I'm trying to get the most range of color. So I'll try to stick at the edge of the red. Mm-hmm. Also same with the whites. Like a lot of times, unless I've blocked the light out, I'm aiming at a close to white, but not quite white. And I think if there was an ability to see beyond that, it would be amazing. It'd be really cool. I think sometimes even people struggle with seeing warm Warmths inside cool colors or yeah. cools inside of warm colors. Like Which is, a you, red, have to, you have to, you have really, to learn it. Yeah, you learn it and you learn to see. And well, when you're mixing paint too, you get like that firsthand experience. But yeah, it's like training. It's it's really interesting because you, when you think about what we don't know or what we can't see, like mm-hmm. out, you, for me, I go to outer space or so like the, you know, the universe. There must be so much out there. We just can't understand it, you know? Yeah. It's like an ant on the surface of the ground. They don't understand what's happening on the 14th floor of a building. Yeah. They can't. And we, we're the ant. Yeah. Right. So, but, and you think about the universe, you think about space outside, but what if there are things here that we can't see because our eyes can't perceive it? Or, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, no, I think about Maybe it's not just far away. Maybe it's also things that we're missing right in front of us. That's like one thing I love about being in the dark Mm -hmm. because I do work in the dark, dark. Um, I like that it renders you bodiless. Yeah. And so therefore, if there were any other entities that existed or ghosts or whatever, um, that you couldn't see based on wavelength of light, I'm the same as them at that moment. Yeah. It's like both bodiless, Mm -hmm. which I think is really, it's, I think about it quite a bit because I'm sure there's a lot that we can't see that's, that's around us and whether yeah. that's intelligent or, you know, possibly like had been, had been alive or not. Like that's just one way to think about it. But yeah, but what's really cool is maybe like in your work, when you're making your work, you're probably channeling into that. 
You're I catching, hope so. I love like thinking that I'm channeling little um, moments of that stuff. and manifesting. Yeah. I love thinking that I'm channeling and manifesting beings mm-hmm. or or like entities or outer space things from outer space. Like yeah. I think about that a lot, and also just outer space too, like requiring. I th- I think about the light and the particle wave, like particle wave theory or whatever, and how the light the part the waves actually need the particles mm-hmm. to be. So there is there is a little bit of a hierarchy in a sense. Like yeah. you can't, it's like you can't scream into space because space there's nothing for it to bounce off of, mm-hmm. or light needs its particles to be to be seen. So if we could man, if we could show different types of particles, you know, then maybe more light would come out, more visibility, or just like ideas of seeing like radiation and things like that. Yeah. Those. It's amazing because when you go to the studio, or at least when I go to the studio, I'm thinking about these images in relation to the world as I see it, mm-hmm. right? Like a lot of what I think my work is is just taking in the world. It's like who we are by the spaces that are around us and like what we build and what we live around. And then there's this whole other level of sort of like existential ideas about, you know, it's really interesting, mm-hmm. it's a, I'm, which is great. That's why I really love your work is because I feel like it takes me there. And I feel like I don't, maybe I'm mistaken, but I feel like no one really does this or kind of the process that you do is is so different than the way most people make work. It's really interesting. Yeah, I think I like to think that I'm doing something new um, that other people don't do. And I don't know who else really is, but I know there's a lot of people working in photograms or um, in analog photography and they have their own thing that they're doing and no one else is really doing what they're doing either you know but yeah I do feel like I'm doing something unique which is cool because in this day and age I feel like a lot of people have this understanding that to do something new it's got to be involving technology like you know something Mm, technology mm -hmm. that's pushing something forward and there's a lot of maybe it's going backwards there's a lot of space you know in the past or like in the older way of doing things that you can play around and do something new which is really cool so what um in the midst of all this and all the stuff you're creating just i want to ask about music and what you're into and like what's so you don't really listen to music that often while you're working in the studio right because you're concentrating yeah on on like the process but what do you what are you into what's your um Gosh, that's a hard question for me. I'm interested in, I like pop music. I like like indie pop music. I feel like that's a common answer maybe, but like happy, like bubblegum kind of like mm-hmm. music like that. Um, but my favorite thing is just when people make me mix mixes. Yeah, playlists. Playlists. I'm like, I because I don't feel like I go out and seek my own music out as well as I wish I did. Like, mm-hmm. um I get hooked on certain songs, like, for long periods of time. Um, Like, you know, the band Beach House or something like that. I'm, like, into Beach House. Or, um, you know, I get, I get, I was hooked on Vampire Weekend forever, (laughs) even when everyone else was over it. Yeah. Um, But I like playlists. I can't think of what kind of music is my favorite music. But I even like classical music. I like, I'm even a person that I don't, like the politics and words within country music, but it doesn't bother me mm-hmm. to ha- to hear country music. Yeah. Um, Omaha as much related? As maybe. maybe. Yeah. Maybe probably so. Yeah. Um, 
Well, when you were young, did you listen to a lot of music growing up? Was it in the house, you know, or like? Yeah, there was a lot of music in the house, and I like a lot of like classic rock and things like this. I mean, the last music show I went to, oh, actually, the last music show I went to was last week. It was called, and it was uh, Johnny. It was the Eaters. Uh huh. And then before that, it was like two weeks or three weeks, and it's it was a DJ called No Such Thing. No Such Thing. It's awesome. He's from LA, and he actually my last. Uh, opening that I had at Haunch of Venison in New York and Rock Center, he played at my opening. That's awesome. Yeah, Jason. I, Jason, yeah. Yep. We, well, I actually met him when I went to Japan. Oh, really? Because I went to the um, Taiko Club Music Festival. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. There's like a, like, I, it's, maybe it's better to just say like what I last went to go listen to because it's hard for me to think of what is my, what is my music. But I always want mixed CDs. Like people yeah. give me or CDs mix mixes now. <laughs> now people don't give me a yeah, mix yeah. CD. But um, <laughs> when people give me mixes, I I love it. Yeah. I'm like really really grateful. Well, I mean, I grew up with the mixtape. You know, like yeah. that was the funnest thing to do is make your own mixtapes and oh, then yeah. trade them and play those things until they couldn't till the tape broke. You yeah. know, like and how you had to make them was really intense. Yeah. Too, and you had to play and record and stop and everything back and forth and sometimes the song wouldn't fit yep you'd have to flip it remember when the technology Mm -hmm. came out where it auto flipped your tape and it was like (laughs) an amazing (laughs) yeah yeah cassettes they were they were pretty cool yeah yeah but i think we grew up on that mixtape culture you know that kind of yeah you make them for your friends and share them and it was pretty cool yeah sometimes on repeat lately i've been listening to this song called keep you by class actress I don't know, class actress. Um, oh, wait, or, yeah, I'm not, I s- not familiar. That, um, what else is there? I like music. I like even, I don't like Drake as a person necessarily, but like, <laughs> li- I've been listening to, like, so I like Drake. I've been listening to a lot of Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber's new album is amazing. Yeah, I haven't listened to the whole thing, but some of it I've heard, and it's, it's Diplo, right? He did a lot of it. Yeah. 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 It's just funny how, like, pop stars will take on their music they'll get a producer who's kind of doing some interesting things and it can totally revamp. Yeah. I mean, it's an album. I mean, it's and a lot of, a lot of musicians aren't making albums anymore in the same way. Singles. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. But I actually bought that CD. I ordered it in the mail, um, for Carolina for her birthday, my partner (laughs) and left it on her pillow. So when she came home and she she saw it and she was so excited. And so, yeah, the Beaver CD. So she, so we've been listening to the Beaver CD quite a bit i'll have to has, listen to the whole thing yeah although i would probably transfer that i don't know if i like drake as a person and switch that over to bieber <laughs> a lot of people don't like justin bieber and you know i know he's kind of had some issues but i personally think we need to like be on bieber's side in the sense like i'm i feel like he's young <laughs> i want to almost yeah. do a campaign let's pray for bieber he's like a child actor yeah, like because feel I feel like he's young and he and he's gotten big so fast, and he actually um, probably in a way does struggle with his identity or will, and oh, yeah. I and like the trouble he's gotten into, I think are just uh, manifestations of that. I'm my motherly mode comes out, and I think pray for Bieber. He needs yeah. care rather than hate. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of you. <laughs> Yeah, you know, making a gazillion dollars isn't going to make your life any better if you've constantly been on the microscope. and Yeah. Yeah, that must not be easy. Child actors, too, I feel like it's the same thing. If you don't have a childhood and you're just thrust into the spotlight, how are you going to be yeah. a normal person? Exactly. Or even kids. I always think this about kids of really famous, really rich people. 
do they have a chance in life? Because they're probably, aren't they probably always under the shadow yeah. of their parents? Yeah. And it's got to be really hard to to flourish as, Yeah, because you know, they'll have to look for something else that differentiates themselves, even though they're part of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like if your dad is Alex Rodriguez, like, how can you have your own <laughs> identity? You know, you're always that. You can that change kid. your name. That's I true. guess this is one way to get around it. Unless, because I guess forever people might, if you move away, people, Rodriguez is luckily a kind, a kind of common last name it That's could true. be. So you can really escape unless people will ask you. But once people find out, then they see you with that every time they see you. Yeah, it's weird how they sniff out celebrity. Like they're really good at figuring out like, oh, your dad is, oh, your mom, you know. Yeah. I find myself being like that. Mm-hmm. And even though I don't want to be, it's the way you, when you see somebody or meet somebody, it's like you hold within you something about them that you know mm-hmm. as like the thing. Human nature, right? Like yeah. It's some sort of yeah. thing that we do. And, 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 and sometimes you wish you didn't do it. It's like, let's say that you won the lottery. Like I would always see you as like, oh, Brian, yeah, he's, he's like, he's a cool guy. He's a painter. I really like him. He's, I like talking to him. He won the lottery. It's like every time I'd see <laughs> right. you, I'd be like thinking it. Yeah. This guy has a million, millions and millions of dollars. Yeah. And you just can't let it go. Yeah. And there's that within, within like anybody, I suppose. But yeah, it is interesting because you, it's like a nugget. It's like a little snapshot that you attach to people. Yeah. Not to everybody. I don't feel like I have it on everybody, but I have it with like a lot of people right and i know people have it with me but you so. wouldn't be like oh there's brian you know oh yeah he's he's a nice guy he's an artist and he used to skateboard as a kid it would never be something like that it's no. always gonna be some like life-changing big event like he won the mega millions yeah <laughs> <laughs> things yeah. are really different about him now <laughs> yeah it, it affects you we should play i think it's up to 315 million. Oh my god should we can we go in an artist pool that would be better. Yeah. Yeah, because I feel like, like it's 20. better to win collectively yes. than alone. Oh, too much pressure. Yeah. Also, the fact that they announce it out yeah. loud is yeah. too much. Like, good. then you really can't escape. It's like if, Hurley on Lost. If you won, it's almost like you wouldn't want to. <laughs> you wouldn't want to <laughs> tell anybody. No, of course not. But everybody will know. Yeah. What do? What's up with the Bentley? <laughs> like, all this, like why yeah why did you your studio is so much bigger yeah yeah but exactly. if you all pull in we could all get like go upstate and get like a giant we could just get a town that make, could be nice yeah make artist studios and have like a music venue and yeah pretty sweet and then people would end up not liking our collective yeah, you know from around true. the world they'd oh, be the like oh them <laughs> <laughs> they brought in bieber i mean <laughs> And Vampire Weekend opened. Oh, my gosh. This sounds great. All right, so you're going to be in charge of the Facebook group page for the lottery, <laughs> artist lottery pool, okay? That sounds great. going to do it. I can still do Facebook. Cool. So what? Uh, before we go, what what do you have coming up? What are you working on? Hmm. I'm working on a continuation of two different projects, I suppose. One is the Totems. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that I have two shows coming up in Ireland. It's one show, but it travels. Mm-hmm. And that is all totems. That's this summer. That's June and August. So June, it's going to be in Cork, mm-hmm. Cobe. Um, Are you going over? County Cork, Cobe. Yes, I'm nice. going. And doing um, a workshop on cyanotypes. Nice. And um, I'll be there with Jessamine Fiore. She's curated the show. Mm-hmm. 
And Max Warsh is the other artist in the show. And cool. he's a friend I went to grad school with. But Jess and then went to undergrad with Max and liked both of our work and didn't know that when she first put us together that we knew each other. Small world again. Small world again. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to be talking about how um, art in New York in the 70s relates to contemporary art in New York now. Mm-hmm. So we're doing a Sounds interesting. presentation. Yeah, that's great. Um, and then also at the Serious Art Center, there's an artist there named um, Patrick O'Doherty. Mm-hmm. O'Doherty? Am I got his name right? Gosh. He, he changed his name, so that's what makes it tricky. Gotcha. Brian O'Doherty. Patrick Ireland. That's okay. his name. His okay. name is Patrick Ireland, but, uh, or now it's Patrick Ireland, but it was Brian O'Doherty. He made a big mural on the wall of the Sirius Art Center, which is related to the Ohm cycle, mm-hmm. which is like a Gaelic alphabet. And he, it's been covered up. And so we are going to be a little bit in discussion with what, is under the wall versus how it talks to our work. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot kind of going on with that. That's Cork. And then the show moves to Dublin, in which at which point we're going to have different discussions, some related to running your own space um, as artists, like a collective yeah. in New York. And um, I have less experience with that in New York, but I did run a space in Chicago mm-hmm. for a few years um, with my partner. And it was called Swimming Pool Project Space. Mm -hmm. And now we just reopened together in Brooklyn, and it's called the Elijah Wheat Showroom. Oh, cool. When did that That start? Literally, like, less than two weeks ago. Nice. You'll have to come over. Yeah. It's on Myrtle and Broadway. Cool. Or Myrtle and Beaver. But it's off the Myrtle uh, Broadway stop off the JMZ. Sounds good. So we're doing that. And then I also have a residency coming up in Budapest. Wow. That's going to be yeah, that's. I'm really looking forward to that. I've never been to Budapest. And that's in sep- the month of September, but I will have a show there prior to it mm-hmm. in the end of August. And then those are the main things. That sounds great. That's a lot. That's just the next few months, so. Well, that's a full plate. And Dan Zegger's show comes down on Saturday. Cool. Awesome. Thanks so much for talking to me. Thanks, Brian. It was great to chat. You made it easy. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. All right. Thanks.